Equinox Week. Here we are bringing you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Now remember, if you value what we do, folks, we need your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website and make a donation or even sign up for a monthly pledge. And thanks also to the local businesses who help make this program possible, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's our anchor sponsor. Gateway is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, and their cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. They've also got a great uh, floral and catering service. That's uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe. And thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Well, what do we got for you? The Summit Carbon Solution Pipeline, There, we got an update for you on that. That's um, moving ahead, unfortunately, and very interesting. Also, um, we're going to be talking with Mark Klipsham about, uh, about religion. Has it done more harm than good in the world? Well, there's some varying opinions about that. Uh, Leah Redwood with Extinction Rebellion is going to join us about the Stop Funding Fossil Fuels campaign. And uh, to wrap it all up in our food and farming segment, Kathy Burns is going to join us, and we're going to be talking about uh, growing our food versus growing our girth. But to kick off the program with me is uh, attorney Joseph Glazebrook, and we're going to take a look at the Supreme Court. Always worth watching, but some really uh, big issues and some concerning possibilities before us right now. Joseph, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ed. Great to be back. Okay, so everybody's been tracking what's been going on in Texas with the... Uh, the, um, the worst anti-choice law ever passed in the U.S. since Roe v. Wade. And uh, all eyes are on that. But the Supreme Court it kind of punted on that, and now they're looking at taking potentially action on, on I think, a Mississippi law? Well, yeah. So the, what they did is they um, didn't take action when they normally we would have expected them to take action to at least temporarily halt the Texas law from going into effect. You know, from since 1973, when Roe v. Wade was decided, um, there's been a sort of settled status quo legally in this country that, you know, if a state or federal government decide to do something that infringes upon the qualified right to have an abortion, um, the courts will block those laws from going into effect. And in this case, uh, for the first time, really, in any substantive way since then, the court decided, no, we'll let it take effect, and then we'll rule on the actual law later. Okay. And so, basically, what what Texas did stands. And now women who uh, need an abortion, want to make that choice, are having to go to other states. Right. I mean, and just to be, just to, for everybody's uh, background here, the, you know, the law in question was, it's this strange law that they passed that basically allows uh, people in Texas, actually people from anywhere, really, it doesn't restrict it, to sue uh, in civil court anybody who assists a woman in uh, getting an abortion in any way. That includes the provider, but it also includes people like the, the Uber driver or maybe the friend that went with them or something. And the idea is that they're going to use the mechanisms of the civil justice system 
to discourage and, and prevent people from uh, seeking abortions was, and certainly to prevent clinics from operating. There's so much intimidation there. Right. Yeah. I, in fact, people have described it as a bounty hunter system, and that's basically what it is because the state will uh, facilitate you being paid $10,000 per person you catch helping somebody get an abortion. That's crazy. So, again, and that's, that's beyond the pale of the Supreme Court, uh, but there's great concern about the Supreme Court given the current conservative makeup. I mean, is it, is it impossible to imagine that through some uh, through some one mechanism or another, the Supreme Court is likely to overturn Roe v. Wade? No, I mean it is it is absolutely within the realm of possibility that they will do that. In fact, I think that this uh, outcome was somewhat cast in stone, or at least to the conceivable mind, when Anthony Kennedy retired and Brett Kavanaugh took his uh, seat uh, a number of years ago. You know, th- this this issue was uh, kind of settled when the court had a uh, sort of moderate uh, balance to it, starting in the early 90s, really, this Rehnquist court. You know, you had four liberals, essentially, and you had three conservatives, and you had two middle-of-the-road kind of judges. So it was a very balanced court. And that court ruled in a case in 1992 called Planned Parenthood versus Casey by, uh, I think it was a seven to two margin that, you know, this right is protected and is, is with us and it's part of the precedent of the court and we're not going to change that. But since then, you know, the justices who have come onto the court have been shifting the court substantially to the right. You know, Obama had two, two picks, uh, Kagan and Sotomayor, and they basically kept the, those seats in the hands of liberals. But the conservatives have replaced their own conservatives with other conservatives, but also the moderates and one liberal now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with conservatives. So instead of having this four to three to two kind of balance, it's now basically a six to three conservative tilt. And that's what the, right. the situation is that makes it conceivable that Roe could be taken away. And so what about uh, what about election law? That's, an, that's been another um, hot-button item. Yeah. And certainly Texas is one of the states where we've seen um, seen action on that front. We've seen, you know, kind of tangential um, uh, initiatives in Arizona and other, other, other states. Um, but uh, basically, the and Texas in particular, again, has gone the extra mile in trying to make sure it's difficult to vote. And what is the Supreme Court? There, there are those arguing that, well, this is an infringement of the uh, Voter Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the uh, Civil Rights Act, and, uh, and uh, it's not hard to imagine that a more balanced Supreme Court might intervene and say, hey, this is not acceptable. What do we see happening under the current co- court relevant to election law? Well, unfortunately, you know, as with the case on many issues, this court has begun to flex its radical conservative muscles. You know, a few years ago when the court was still somewhat balanced, but kind of 5-4 leaning conservative, Justice Roberts wrote an opinion that basically said that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional. It was this preclearance provision. This was the Shelby County case. Now, this was before the conservative modern takeover of the court that I'm talking about, but this this still was a very divisive and polarized opinion. It was 5-4, and it was... Um, you know, the classical court conservatives going against the liberals saying, let's get rid of that preclearance stuff. Recently, I think about a year ago, the much more conservative court now uh, overturned another part of the Voting Rights Act, at least as applied in certain situations that even 
um, applies after the provision goes into law that kind of defangs the Voting Rights Act. So basically, we're in a situation where the Voting Rights Act is not nearly as powerful as it once was to prevent these states from en enacting these restrictive measures. And what that means for places like Texas and, yes, Iowa as well, is that these laws are probably not going to be reviewed in a uh, aggressive way at the federal level by courts. They are probably going to be subject to a very passive review. Just, you know, as long as the court can find some vague notion that it improves some aspect of the state's concerns about integrity or whatever, they're probably going to uphold these laws at the federal level. And it's very troubling. Yeah. And of course, the biggest uh, challenge to uh, fair representation uh, politically in the U.S. is uh, re is, uh, is gerrymandering. And with redistricting going on, there's more conversation about um, what might happen if there is a challenge to any particular state's uh, uh, you know, a new congressional district plan. And uh, my assumption is that the Supreme Court is just going to say, well, not our business, uh, up to the states. And as bad as it might be, even if they've created uh, new districts that, that look a, more, a lot more like an amoeba than any kind of logical geographic division, this, the court's just going to punt and say, nope, not our business. Is that your take as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very clear. There was a case, actually, I think it was 2017 or 18 when Kennedy was still on the court. So you had, he was the swing vote at the time. I mean, it was four liberals, four conservatives, and Anthony Kennedy. And the court ruled 5-4 in that case that a, uh, I can't remember if it was Ohio, I think, um, when they came up with a very badly gerrymandered map, that court ruled that there was no federal uh, right to have a non-gerrymandered uh, state, basically. And so because of that, this much more conservative court is simply going to take a hands-off approach and basically say that gerrymandering is all part of the political process. Mm -hmm. And when, when Republicans win at the state level, they get to you know, screw up their maps however they want in any whatever configuration they want as, you know, as long as the people voted for them to be in that yeah. position to do so. So uh, one last question, Joseph. Climate change, uh, again, likely in some form, perhaps several forms, uh, to come before the U.S. Supreme Court. What's your, what's your long view cast on what might happen in that realm? Well, again, unfortunately, because of how badly the court has drifted to the conservative side, I see absolutely no hope that the Supreme Court will do anything substantive on climate change. You know, the lawsuits that have been brought in the past uh, have been uh, rooted in things like uh, the EPA, or there's actually a currently pending case that basically says, well, I, you know, as a child, as a young person, I have the right to grow up in a world that's not completely destroyed by climate change. So right. judge, please give me, please make the government do something about this. And that case is currently pending, but I, I guarantee right. you the Supreme Court is going to rule against that plaintiff, and they're going to they're going to say that that person doesn't have standing to challenge the law. And, and my, my impression is those that that case also says not just the government needs to do something, but the government has intentionally done the wrong thing that have that has made the prospects of their future in a changing climate look very very grim. Yeah, I mean, at least in that sense, there might be some substantive uh, uh, aspect where the person can point to harm caused by government action. Maybe they can get around the standing barrier that's a procedural barrier in that claim. But, you know, the other part of the lawsuit is definitely not going to survive. And in terms of that, I think that just they're going to rule that there's no right to, to be protected from climate change. I think they're just going to say they're going to take this conservative approach and they're going to say, well, vote for people who support climate legislation then or whatever. Yeah. And it's just well, too bad. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Joseph. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Joseph Glazebrook. He's an attorney here in Des Moines, Iowa. When we come back, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about the, Sar Car the Summit Carbon Solutions 
CO2 pipeline proposed for Iowa, Nebraska, Minnesota, South Dakota, and North Dakota. Public hearings are beginning. I've been to a couple. We'll talk about that when we come back from a short break on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. If you like what you hear on this program, support it, folks. We need your help. You won't hear it on the corporate-owned stations, of course. And the right-wing shock jocks, they're just off the charts. So check out our website, Fallon Forum. Consider becoming a monthly sponsor or donating to the program and spreading the word about it. Thanks to our local business partners as well. Thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Our cat loves her. Our chickens, I think they maybe like her. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or by calling Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. And thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's architecture by synthesis. So the public hearings in Iowa have begun relevant to the proposal by uh, Summit Carbon Solutions to build 700 miles of pipeline in Iowa uh, that connect ethanol plants with a main trunk that brings the CO2 up to a facility in North Dakota. Now, there will there will, there are, there are feeder pipelines coming in from all sorts of places, not just Iowa, but Minnesota, Nebraska, South Dakota, and uh, Kathy and I had a chance to go to the first two public hearings in Hardin County, and in Story County. Hardin County is where the the uh, the the guy behind the really really rich guy behind this proposal, Bruce Rastetter. That's where he's got his headquarters. That's where he's from. And so it was appropriate, I suppose, that Hardin County should be the first county to have a public hearing. Now, it was, um, here's some of my takeaways from that experience. Uh, landowners are concerned about the, um, about the threat of eminent domain because, again, this is 700 miles just in Iowa. That's 700 miles of pipeline. And again, this is only one of two 
carbon dioxide pipelines propose. The other one is the Navigator, and they have yet to come out from behind the shadows because, well, I don't know, maybe they're, maybe they're coordinating this. Let, let carbon solutions go first, and then we'll come out and see how it goes. But the Navigator pipeline would be an entirely different set of um, pipes. Uh, and so it's, to put this in perspective, 700 miles of pipeline, that's twice as many miles of pipeline as just the Dakota Access Pipeline across Iowa. It's a lot. It's a lot of condemnation of property. And I know the argument is, uh, well, the, the, the three arguments made, one, Iowa grows corn. We do a great job of corn. Corn is us. We need to grow more corn. The more corn, the better. And this helps assure that Iowa corn farmers are going to be able to continue to produce that corn because it makes it clear that ethanol is part of the, uh, part of the game going forward. That's one of the arguments. Pro-corn. I get that. And I have a lot of friends, family farmer friends, who raise corn. I get why they do it. It grows well here, and also, most importantly, it's heavily subsidized by the federal government. That's the main reason we grow a lot of corn here. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Again, I don't fault the farmers. They're playing by the system and the rules that are set down by Washington, D.C. and the lobbyists who help write legislation. But the, um, the other reasons are one of, oh, that's the first one, corn. The second one, of course, is always jobs. Uh, so the, um, the building trades were out in force at both public hearings, and a couple of the uh, leaders of the um, Laborers Union come up and talk to me, and we have, a, we have a cordial relationship. I've been a friend of the labor movement uh, for decades now. In fact, when I was a legislator, my voting record in support of labor was 88%. And I think most of the other 12% were votes that I missed for one reason or another. And that wasn't a lot of votes. So, you know, I, I, I appreciate all the, the, the critical importance of labor unions uh, to, our, to our economy, uh, to, to decent jobs. But I part ways when it comes to, you know, jobs that are basically uh, about something that shouldn't happen. And... Uh, that brings me to the third point, climate change. And people are all over the board on this. I mean, when I say people, people concerned about climate change are all over the board. I've talked to four Iowa climate scientists who are kind of, well, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a mixed bag. And I get that. But I think what I heard from one of my climate scientist friends today sealed it up for me perfectly. Uh, it's really important, this person said, that we remove CO2 from the atmosphere. I think everybody agrees. Well, not everybody. Most people agree with that. And the bottom line is, this is not removing CO2. It's the CO2 up there that's already causing us to be on a pathway for unsustainable global warming. Removing that makes sense. And last week, of course, I talked about the, the, the huge carbon removal uh, uh factory, what do you want to call it, uh, machine in Iceland, which even if it were to succeed at removing the targeted amount of CO2 from the air, you still need 10 billion of these machines, which is ridiculous. Uh, so <laughs> the bottom line is, uh, yes, we need to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, and I think farmers have a role to play in that through sequestering those emissions in cropland, uh, through, so, through, through, uh, through um, sequestering them in trees, uh, 
wetlands. I mean, there, there are ways to do that that makes sense. But does it make sense to capture carbon emissions from a new source and bring that to North Dakota? And again, the two related concerns are, are that what happens when it gets to North Dakota? Well, that was a very interesting conversation I had uh, at both these uh, meetings. Actually, being at Hardin first, Hardin County first, I had a chance to refine my question going into the Story County meeting. And again, here's how it works. The, the representative from the Iowa Utilities Board gets up and reads a bunch of PowerPoint uh, uh, sl slides and then defers to the representatives of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the Summit um, Carbon Solutions. And uh, they give their dog and pony show and then they take questions from the audience. And again, my question here was, uh, okay, so you're shipping this to North Dakota and you say you're going to store it deep underground in safe geological formations. Does that mean you're not going to use it for fracking? Well, ham and haw bed, and uh, at this time we have no plans to do that. Our plan at this time is to put it underground. I said, well, that, well would, you, would, you, would you be willing to say in writing that you have no intention of ever using this CO2 for fracking? They weren't willing to do that, which makes it pretty clear to me that they intend to use this CO2 for enhanced oil extraction in North Dakota. Because the typical ingredients in fracking, and we don't even know them all because the companies won't tell us them all. We know there's wa water and sand. Some of that sand comes from Northeast Iowa. That's another controversy of its own. And uh, then a bunch of chemicals, which you would not want in your drinking water, and yet a lot of people in Appalachia are getting stuck with these chemicals in their drinking water. And apparently that mix, that toxic mix, is able to get a bunch of the oil dislodged from the uh, area they're fracking. But apparently CO2 does an even better job at getting to the most difficult uh, uh, oil to extract. And so, yeah, they've been using around the country, the existing 5,000 miles of CO2 pipelines have been using CO2 to further enhance oil extraction. So there's no doubt that they're planning to use this for that purpose once it gets to North Dakota. No doubt at all. And the fact that they won't commit to not doing that, that's about all that I need to hear. So again, this CO2 pipeline is actually going to exacerbate the climate crisis. It's not, it's not capturing existing emissions. Uh, it's, 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 again, they're, they're not saying it right now, but it's pretty clear they're going to use it to... Uh, to to, um, you know, to capture additional oil, to extract additional oil. You know, the other, the other, yeah. So, okay, so I, I get that climate change is a big deal when it comes to this. I also know that that's a harder conversation to have because the conversation that we're having about this is relatively simple. I was on a webinar the other day, really brilliant people involved in that, scientists, and they presented a lot of great information and I'm into this stuff. I, I dig this stuff. I, I read about it. And it's just going over my head like so many shooting stars. I can't keep up with it. And I, I wanted to jokingly say, well, I, this is a great presentation. When will it be available in English? Um, <laughs> I didn't say that. Because, uh, again, I appreciate the work the scientists do. But um, they are patting each other on the back. They're doing great research. We agree. Now we need to figure out how to make that research something that people can understand. In the meantime... Let's look at the strongest arguments against the CO2 pipeline. Well, the last week's guest um, uh, who talked about the situation in Satarsia, Mississippi, 
I mean, that that's a good reason not to want a CO2 pipeline running through your neighborhood. Because if it blows, if it ruptures or leaks, you could be dead. There's, uh, there's a real problem with CO2 emissions in concentrated form. And that was another way in which the representative from the, uh, from the uh, carbon solutions company was being disingenuous. I pointed out that. I think actually there were several uh, pe people who got up to ask questions who pointed that out, who mentioned Satarshi in Mississippi. And what, the, uh, what one of the people with the company said was, well, you know, CO2 is a natural gas. We breathe it all the time. Okay, we don't breathe it in those concentrations. You like the idea of breathing CO2 in, in a concentrated form? Put a plastic bag over your head. Breathe into that for a while. See how well that goes for you. But the other big reason why, the biggest reason why this pipeline should have a strong coalition against it, besides climate, besides risk to our air, water, our health as the pipeline comes through and potentially breaks, the biggest argument is the abuse of eminent domain. And I want to talk more about that next week because the, the, if environmentalists and people concerned about water quality and public health don't talk about that, they are missing the key opportunity to build an alliance that we will need if we're going to have any chance at all of stopping the expansion of these carbon dioxide pipelines. That's what people are most concerned about who live along the route. And the folks along the route are the ones, you know, they're on the line. I mean, all of us are affected by this, but they're in the crosshairs. And there was some really powerful testimony from a couple landowners at the Story County hearing, one who was on a sixth-generation farm. I'm really glad that Channel 8 KCCI caught that conversation. And uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be sharing that um, in the future as well. But the bottom line is that that's the issue that hits the heartstrings more than anything. And, and again, as it should, it's wrong for government to come in and let a private company take your land for an, an entirely private purpose. You know, that's people were really against that when it came to the Dakota Access Pipeline giving, give, being given that authority. And I think... If we can really show that uh, that's what's happening here and really support the landowners that aren't happy about it, I think that's a winning combination. Anyway, more about that in future, future programs. And again, I want to talk more about eminent domain because there's a lot to be said about that. But when we come back from a short break, Mark Klipsham is going to join me, folks. We're going to be talking about religion. Yeah, I know. Scary, right? Question being, has it done more harm than good in the world? Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village.
Solstice Week. Greetings from Des Moines, Iowa, the heart of America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host. You know, you can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor. You can check out the Fallon Forum website or just, you know, give me a shout at edatfallonforum.com. It matters. It means a lot to us. And uh, we wouldn't be able to do this without the support of our listeners. Thanks also to the local businesses who sponsor our program and our nonprofit partners as well, including Bold Iowa, building rural urban coalitions to address climate change and to push back against the abuse of eminent domain. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. I would like to, at this point, welcome Mark Klipsham to the program. Hello, Mark. How's it going? Uh, as well as it could be. I'm on my porch listening to the breeze and uh, enjoying the nice weather. Okay. If we if we were to sit on our porch right now, we would be hearing massive construction noises. So you got the better of the uh, of the, uh, the the better straw in that draw. Well, they're harvesting fields next to me, but luckily the wind's blowing the other way. So I All think right, they so. call that the price of progress, but... Yeah. Anyway, sure. So whatever they want. Let, let's uh, let's talk a bit about the, uh, the 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 big dude in the sky, God. Um, and uh, I, I think because you know, it religion enters into the converse. A lot of these conversations we have involve religion. I talked with our attorney, our attorney friend this morning, uh, early early in the program, um, about the Supreme Court, about choice, about voting, about climate. We've been talking about the proposed co2 pipeline you know in all of these conversations there's an element of, of play where spirituality and religion comes in i'm writing an essay called god for atheists god for atheists that, <laughs> pardon me god for atheists correct i like that well the, the atheists say i don't believe in god i said well myself i try not to believe in anything I try to know. Uh, it, it, it's a very hard thing to tear apart, to, to, to separate. Uh, I, I hate to use disparaging terms, but I'll say the baby from the bathwater. To, to my observation or my philosophy way of thinking, God simply is. You talked about the dude in the sky. No, that's as soon as you put a pronoun on something, it, it's a personality. And to me, that's an idol. And idols are about self-worship. Right, and, and in particular in these days of, uh, of uh, caution about the use of pronouns, I was totally out of line. <laughs> um, I had a, a recurring thought I've had many years ago, and that is, as a species, we are barely out of the womb. We are infants, maybe getting towards childhood. We're soiling our diaper. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's making us irritable now. It's still our soil not the stuff you grow in, you know what I mean? But uh, the other analogy I had was it's like you're in a car, this big car, and you've got a, a, a windshield and you've got a rearview mirror, and it seems like we've got the rearview mirror pointed at ourselves and we're looking at ourselves as we're driving along, uh, completely sort of oblivious to everything else that's going on out there. Yeah. The God, the, the, the basic God, the, the part of God we, we all are part of, not separate from which religious tells us we're separate from nature and we're something apart. Well, some religions say that. Some religions are very much based in nature. And uh, I, I think those uh, religious perspectives 
are, are probably um, gaining more support and interest. And I would say, you know, regarding Christianity, yeah, there's there's a definite um, history there of, of distinguishing humanity from the natural world. But there's also a tradition that uh, that respects nature. I mean, right now we've got a group of young people, young Christians, walking 1,000 miles from southern England to Glasgow. I mean, there's a there's a there's a display of religiosity there that gets it, that understands the connection between faith, between society, between the natural world. Yeah, and that that's the point is, it's not God versus religion; it's God and religion. Religion is based off of my philosophical concept of God, reality, truth, infallible laws that can't be broken, or you, to put it. Biblically or religiously, you invoke the wrath of God. Uh, we've been taking and taking and taking, and that's an unbalanced equation. We're not giving anything back other than kind of pollution and garbage, what's left over. Yeah, that's not very helpful. It, it doesn't work. I mean, it, it's, it, it, in the political world, it would be unsustainable. And you had talked about the group of Christians. Religion is based on these infallible laws of God, that's what gives it its credibility. Right. Sure. But so again, I... The part, sorry, is what's added to God for the purpose of man. And that's, I think, where we run into yeah. the problem. I mean, and, and again, I, we can all think of plenty examples of religion being used for the wrong purposes. In my, you know, close to my own roots, uh, there was a war fought in Ireland uh, between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, <laughs> not entirely over religion, but uh, that, was a, that was a big part of the uh, conversation. And now we see what's happening in Afghanistan with uh, a, a, a radical uh, element of Islam um, running a country in a way that looks pretty unhealthy for most people, especially women. The, the, the uh, Ireland, you know, it's like the, right out of the Bible, an eye for an eye. You end up with a whole lot of blind people. <laughs> right, as Gandhi reminded us. But, but I mean, I, so I guess, I guess the question is, um, you know, a lot of... I, I can't speak to religions around the world, but in the U.S., Christianity has been losing membership. It's a club that's in decline. And maybe partly for the reasons you've identified is that, is that the uh, overall people don't see religion and God as being uh, uh, you know, uh, part of the same conversation, and they certainly don't see religion and nature as being part of the same uh, you know, worldview. I mean, they again... Uh, there are exceptions, but I think overall, mm. it's a conflict, and 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 it, it's a conflict that is, it, it can't last if the purpose of society, culture, civilization is health and happiness. It's not working. Um, I went to a barn party this week, and it was fantastic. A barn uh, barn party? Yes. Oh, you know, campfires. Uh, Musicians playing music, people bringing the food. Cows and goats and sheep. Pardon me? Cows and goats and sheep. Uh, no, actually oh. not that kind of barn. Oh, okay. That's part of the, the operation, I think, ended long ago. Now it's sort of carved out of the gotcha. uh, BASF test plot, but that's neither here nor there. Right, but it was, it was, fun. Uh, it was fun because it was community and connected yeah, to nature. We spend so much time just working, could have being productive. I think that's the Protestant work ethic thing. And, and I was at an office space. I was like, I don't think God meant for us to spend our life in cubicles, you know, doing uh, uh, TPS reports. You know, that's, no, that's wrong. It, it, 
One, 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 one of my one of my favorite. I mean, my two favorite elements of Christian and Hebrew scripture, the Gospels and and, G, and Jesus's continued reference in metaphor in um, parables to the natural world. Uh, I, that 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 was always really appealing to me. And and again, prophetic the prophetic text. There's a free, there were frequent references to nature as well. I mean, I, I guess you could say that's true of the scripture beyond that, but. But to where where did this where did this disconnect come in? Is it is it would you say that that religion Christianity in particular was corrupted in order to accommodate the the endless growth paradigm that is central to the capitalist the 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 crony capitalist vision for how economic activity happens? Exactly. If I could, uh, uh, I'll steal a phrase. It's cafeteria religion, uh, in this case Christianity, we kept the dominate and exploit part uh, right out of the Old Testament. I'm reading it, and, and parts of it are, are abhorrent and just very, I didn't agree with. And then I get into something like Proverbs, and maybe it was Isaiah, and it said, you know, do not add field to field and house to house until there is nothing left. Right. And I'm, I'm literally looking out my porch right now, and I'm seeing nothing but fields. Yeah. And the only thing that gets rid of the fields is the city development that takes that over. Yeah. I've actually preached on that text before in a, in a, in a conversation about urban sprawl. I was like, so, so it's a whole basket. You know, monotheism, any religion, is, or indigenous peoples, whatever, is built off observation of the natural world, the infallible rules of God, but... Ed, they're really inconvenient, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, hey, do you, do you think the religions that are more soundly rooted in nature are going to become more popular, more widely accepted, uh, more, I mean, more inclined to replace the traditions that tend to separate humanity from the natural world? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And currently the last are indigenous peoples, which did not separate themselves. The, the trees were relatives. The, I mean, you could kill a river, right? That means that river is alive and it has a spirit and they recognize that spirit. I, I have a, a little bit of that. I feel so blind about it. I guess I'm sort of nervous and anxious about this interview because I don't have the answers yet. I'm, I'm in a journey. I'm in a process of trying to figure out what went wrong or what could be better or once again if, if the goal is health and happiness what we're doing is is headed in the opposite direction there's drug addiction there's pollution there's war uh yeah. if you want to say that's god i don't want anything i don't think that is god i think that's religion i think part yeah, of the problem is it's it's hard it's hard to see how we find our way out of where we're at right now uh, obviously well, things are a mess completely <laughs> how do we get out of it, it? yeah in that that's all we've ever known you offer someone paradise and that's threatening and it seems like you know the, the big oil is doubling down uh, ag is doubling down and it's it's like i said it's like what are we going to do just go as fast as we can until we hit the wall yeah or and by the way if we hit the wall and we don't die then it's five times as bad as opposed to you know, bringing the yeah. plane down under its own tower, power and walking, you know, it's like, going like I, yeah. I'm tired of flying. I hate flying. 
Well, Mark, let's uh, let's continue this conversation when you figure out all the answers, okay? <laughs> uh, that's never going to happen. I got many, many lives to go. All right. Way, why isn't that a deal? I think that would change the whole paradigm if we had just didn't have just one life. If this was just one more life, even well, that would change our whole perspective. We should talk uh, about uh, that everything. sometime. I, hey, I got to run to a break. Uh, I've got okay, another guest coming on. Gal, a gal with Extinction Rebellion is going to join us. We're going to talk about stop funding the campaign, rather, to stop funding the fossil fuel industry. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum again. Thanks for joining us, Mark Clipsham. Always a pleasure. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon with you here, folks, uh, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks to uh, the, uh, the folks in our listening audience. Uh, you know who you are, who support this program. We really appreciate it. You know, our team of uh, dedicated volunteers couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already supporting our mission, consider a donation on the Fallon Forum website. And thanks also to the local businesses that help make this program possible, including psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. You can contact David Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Thanks also to Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You can learn more at groovy-goods.com or just stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines. Well, I'm delighted to welcome to the program Leah Redwood. Uh, she is with Extinction Rebellion. And I want to hear more about what Extinction Rebellion is doing in the U.S. because primarily when people think of Extinction Rebellion, they think of England. But first, Leah, there was, I believe, a coalition effort to uh, put together an action targeted at Wells Fargo because Wells Fargo has done such a, I put a quote, good job, I'm putting that in quotes, good job at financing fossil fuel expansion. Yeah. So what did you, um, and this is in San Francisco, of course, uh, Wells Fargo is of interest all across the country. I would say here in Des Moines, they're our biggest employer. So uh, there's a lot of interest in what goes on at Wells Fargo's headquarters in San Francisco here in Iowa. But tell us about this action you were involved with. 
Yeah, yeah. So as you said, uh, San Francisco is the world headquarters of Wells Fargo. And so we were able to go to their headquarters building um, in downtown San Francisco. And we had a large coalition of climate justice organizations from the, throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. And we all converged there to let Wells Fargo know that, you know, it's the end of the fossil fuel era and it's time for them to really change what they're doing. They are the number one funder of fracking in the world. They, they put more money into those projects than any other funder. And, um, you know, that's just polluting us in so many different ways. Um, then also they're the number two U.S. funder of Line 3, which I'm sure many of your listeners have sure. heard yep. all about Line 3 up in Minnesota. Yep. And, um, you know, they they put a lot of money towards making that happen. And that fight is still ongoing, even though the construction is nearing completion. So um, everyone involved in that fight is, is pulling out all the stops. And so we are going to the doorstep of Wells Fargo to tell them time to make a change. And so we had a number, great number of people out there. We had a really great educational flyer. Um, one thing I want to make extremely clear is that Extinction Rebellion, it, at least our chapter, um, because all chapters throughout the world, and it's far broader than the UK, um, you know, can operate in, in the name of Extinction Rebellion as long as they agree to the basic demands of Extinction Rebellion as, uh, as an international and, and organization. And let's, uh, let's talk more. But, I want, I, want, I want to go back to, to something, Leah, before we go. I, I want to talk about that, but let me, let me ask you again, uh, to be real clear, um, uh, Wells Fargo continues to finance fossil fuel extraction projects, correct? Yes. But expanding, but, but there are, but, expansion, not okay, just ongoing right. projects that already exist, but expansion. Expanding, which is what the last thing we need right now. But um, exactly. there are, I understand, there are, are there banks that have agreed not to finance expansions? Um, there are banks that have agreed to stop financing coal. That's for certain. And there are banks that, um, no U.S. banks, there <laughs> are banks in Europe and other places right. that have agreed to stop funding fossil fuels. Is, is, is that putting any pressure on Wells Fargo? Um, not so far. The U.S. Mm. banks seem to be pretty comfortable in their ability to continue doing what they're doing. They yeah. they put out information about um, how, how you know much they're doing to to work on climate change, and it's very clear it's very much greenwashing. Right. They they say that they are um, you know fixing all the the light bulbs in their building or you know they're going to make their building um you know greenhouse gas free um, emission free those kinds of things but they aren't addressing at all the investments that they make and right. um, as we know line three itself is going to be equivalent to 50 coal-fired power plants right. they, they, in, they, they, they call it a replacement but it's it's going to re, it's, it's replacing it with like you said an expansion same thing here in iowa the Dakota Access Pipeline is getting ready yes. to double the flow of oil, and that would be an additional 30 coal-fired power plants. So, yes, exactly. And so. and the Line 3 is going, it's not going in the same place. It's not a replacement in any way. It's bigger, and it goes through a whole new channel, a whole new tract 
um, and is crossing so many water bodies. And we know that every single pipeline leaks. There has not been a pipeline that did not leak. And this is crossing the headwaters of the Mississippi, which, you know, is the drinking water for millions and millions of people. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's. Uh, I, I hope that more and more people will will consider divesting of their personal support for Wells Fargo. Yeah, I, I know. I know it especially makes a big difference when institutions, large churches, um, schools, uh, universities, uh, when when, yeah. when when big players who have a lot of money invested in a particular institution say, "Hey, we're going to move somewhere else," that really gets their attention. And I think, you know, what you're doing in San Francisco with this action, and again, we had similar actions here in Iowa a couple of years ago. I think that only continues to, you know, to put pressure where it needs to be, needs to be felt. So, Yeah, yeah. So, and at this action, we kicked off a campaign. We're going to do everything we can to deprive Wells Fargo of any customer that we can. And it's, it's really interesting. Um, the the really large institutional i've been in conversation with the city of berkeley which is where i live in california and they have a process in place where they are attempting to remove their their account from wells fargo but because of the way that banks operate and the size of different institutions there are no other banks that um, you know these big players can can go to easily and so they're looking at all different kinds of options for how to break up their business and put it in smaller banks and they have a banking task force so they're really doing everything they can well good for them yeah so yeah so but if we can get all of us individual uh, members, uh, uh, individual customers, as well as those smaller businesses, um, you know, that we are connected to, like you say, churches, um, small businesses that we own. Mm-hmm. If we can get those to move over to credit unions right. in, in, in mass numbers, that mm-hmm. can have the same kind of effect as an institutional so, customer. So you were involved with this um, this action in, in your capacity with Extinction Rebellion. And again, when a lot of people think of Extinction Rebellion, they think of crazy dramatic actions blocking the streets in London, uh, people chaining themselves to building, um, lots of dramatic stuff that that gets attention, that does often grind business as usual to a halt, but also it might be turning some people off. What, what's your, and, and again, I don't think most people associate um, Extinction Rebellion as much with the U.S., but apparently that's wrong. U.S. The U.S.-based groups are growing in, in influence and uh, yeah. having an impact. Uh, yeah, we have chapters all over the United States. Um, I guess I don't know one that's active in Iowa right now. Um, there is one in the Twin Cities up in Minnesota. But, um, you know, it is it is uh, one thing that I was um, getting to earlier, trying to make clear, we are a completely nonviolent organization. Uh, yes, we do dramatic things, but there is nothing we do that, uh, you know, is direct confrontation with violence, um, with, you know, the authorities, the police force, um, those kinds of things. So everybody comes out to our actions we have families with small children we have 
you know, elders. Um, we're very close in connection with the thousand grandmothers for for future generations. And they come out and they actually help us block the street for when we are doing actions. And at this last one, last Friday, we did a big banner hang um, off of the front of the Wells Fargo building, which, like you say, is very dramatic. Right. But it was, it was nonviolent. Uh, it didn't actually stop people from going into the bank if they wanted to. Um, so we are looking at, uh, you know, those tactics and how to best use them. And we don't, uh, you know, kind of think, OK, let's figure out how we can make people's day difficult today um, and keep them from from doing what they need to do right. in their life. <laughs> that would not or be a good starting point <laughs> to get the attention of the people who are higher up. And so, you know, to to access that. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, Extinction Rebellion is a very open organization that many people might find there were people they could connect with um, who, who look at things the same way you do. Yeah, well, and again, I, I think uh, part of the premise is that uh, we are dealing with the threat of extinction. This is yeah. a big deal. <laughs> this is all, this is everything. This is all on the table. And... Uh, you know, and there are some who who say that well, it's in in this fight, in a fight for our very survival, maybe you know maybe it's okay to go even further. But you know, your the group's commitment to nonviolence, I think, should be um, should should present uh, you know maybe present clarity that this is not threatening to do harm to anyone or to any property, but yet it's just really trying to call out just how urgent this moment is. Exactly, there is there is a distinct lack of urgency from these institutions and even our government. Um, and we are right now heading up to heading into COP26, which is the next step in the in the process since Par the Paris Agreement. And if you know, this is kind of the last moment, um, this is where they're really going to have to make some serious commitments to moving in the other direction. And there aren't really signs right now that that's going to happen. So right now is a really key time to put as much pressure as we can. Right now, there's a climate week in New York. And last Friday, there was also a big, big event in um, New York City, where XRNYC, uh, we call Extinction Rebellion XR, um, right. XRNYC blocked, you know, three different banks um, and did banner hangs and various things to really try and get some attention and put the pressure on these organizations. And I just also did want to encourage people if you want to understand kind of the um, underlying uh, ethos or, or um, you know, how Extinction Rebellion looks at things, there is a, on YouTube, there is a video of Gail Bradbrook, who was one of the oh, yeah. founders of Extinction Rebellion in the UK. It's called Heading for Extinction and What to Do About It. Mm. And this is a video that really brings home what it is we're all facing and the only way to really make these changes to bring these changes about is for enough people to step stand up and step out um, and we know that these are the things that are effective um, just last week we found out that right after a big protest at the U.S. Open uh, against Chubb Insurance, um, they brought a giant inflatable head of the CEO of Chubb, <laughs> and um, had you know signs calling him out for for yeah. not 
uh, stopping the insurance of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, wow. another tar sands pipeline. Wow. And just days later, uh, Chubb committed to ending that relationship with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So we know that these are the kinds of things that actually have the effects that we're looking for and needing. Well, that's that's all very encouraging. Uh, Lee, I want to take a second to thank you uh, so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I was happy to be here. Folks, we've been talking with Leah Redwood with Extinction Rebellion. We'll be back in a minute, and we're going to be talking about, uh, well, switching gears to our farm and food section, growing our food versus growing our girth in response to a new survey that says, hey, obesity, it's a big problem. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, it's not Halloween yet, but check out my Facebook page and the picture of Kathy Burns and a werewolf. And thanks to you for helping to support this program, and thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Yeah, so welcome back to the program. With me in the studio, no, it's not a werewolf, it's Kathy Burns. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks, and uh, Halloween's coming, some people eat a lot of candy. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. So we're going to talk, I mean, the obesity data is out, it's not good, not good for Iowa, not good for a lot of the country. Right, the CDC um, has reported, based on the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, that 16 states in the U.S. now have self-reported adult obesity rates of at least 35%. And that's a BMI, body mass index, of 30 or, 30 or more. The, the yeah. definition, the CDC definition of obesity. Which is, which is serious. That's, that's a, a health risk. It is serious. And Iowa just joined the list of having at least 35% of our adult population report as being obese. That is a rise in obesity from 34% in 2019 to 36.5% in 2020. By comparison, 10 years ago, Iowa's obesity rate was 29%. Still not good, but look at the rise. Yeah, I think maybe it's all those, those fatty foods on a stick at the state fair. No, it's only part part of the problem, only part of the problem. Well, you know, one factor that seems obvious as far as obesity rising in the U.S. is COVID. We're hearing more references to, like, 
I have the COVID-10 or the COVID-20, meaning like you've gained 10 or 20 uh, pounds, kind of like when people say, I gained the college 10 or the college 20. But it's ironic to me for a couple of reasons. Iowa is an agricultural state. And you would think that that means we grow a lot of good food. Well, we grow, <laughs> we, we, we grow a lot of uh, corn and soybeans. Well, good food is a factor in maintaining a healthy weight. And we grow a lot of produce, especially large agricultural produce. But um, good food is not as available as maybe it should be. Um, and also, uh, you know, Iowans should be learning to grow more of their own food, frankly. So a couple of things that weigh in um, on why Iowans are not eating good food, accessibility and the choices that they make and some of their life circumstances. Well, and some of the choices are based on, I'm just say it, advertising. Advertising is very clever, very compelling, and you start believing, and, and that, that, that in conjunction with our natural attraction to fat, sugar, and salt. Mm-hmm. You combine mm-hmm. that with a fast food industry that is really good about packaging um, and advertisement that wants you to come in. That's right. Uh, you know, and, Bright, flashy and, colors. Yeah. Um, well, real food is always healthier. And what keeps us from having access to real food is it's not as available to everybody. And frankly, we often don't have time to prepare our meals and preserve the produce that we can grow. Um, Iowa does grow a lot of corn. Uh, according to the Iowa Growers Association, 53% of Iowa corn goes to producing ethanol. Yeah. And 33% goes to livestock feed and, quote, <laughs> a small portion goes to high fructose corn and, and, syrup. And really none of that corn you see growing out in the fields in Iowa is for human consumption. The, the, the exception would be the field of uh, uh, sweet corn. There, there are Which is a more microscopic large, percentage. Yeah, yeah. There are some large sweet corn fields, but um, you know, Iowa corn is field corn, and yep. that is not used no. for us to make ourselves healthy. Yeah. So yeah, why aren't the big question? Why aren't Iowans growing more food that ends up on our kitchen table instead of in a gas tank, a gas tank or a laboratory? Some people don't have the space to grow it, or they're not. They don't have the knowledge of how to use their space to grow food. And we grow about half the food here at Birds and Bees Urban Farm that we eat on about a tenth of an acre of land. And we do an intensive agricultural um, system and it works for us. Some people also, just because we're Americans and we have the tremendous work ethic that makes us work till we're sick, people don't find the time to grow (laughs) food, to prepare food, to preserve and to enjoy it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's gotta change because we can't continue on this pathway of uh, of uh, see, continuously seeing our collective girth expand. It's not healthy, it's not natural, it's not right. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Delightful to have you sitting next to me in the studio instead of that werewolf that you're hobnobbing with on Facebook. <laughs> hey, thanks to our other guests today, uh, Joseph Glazebrook, Mark Klipsham, and Leah Redwood. Thanks also to the rest of our team, Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, and of course, Kathy Burns. And thanks to our small uh, business partners here in the Des Moines Metro, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Westrom Optometry, Groovy Goods, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks to you for tuning in and checking out our program. We'll see you again next week, folks, on the Fallon Forum. <laughs>